speak in the spirit of God and what he wrote. Okay? But Paul mentions wisdom 15 times in this passage. And he's drilling home to the Corinthians, as I mentioned, this fact that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's one of this age and one that's above it. Okay? And um, it says, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Again. But look at this wisdom as a mystery. And sometimes it's helpful to look at what mystery is not, as opposed to what it is, to help us to understand what it's not. And I think sometimes when we hear about mystery, we're so used to looking at the likes of Sherlock Holmes, yeah, and we like to see these riddles that need to be solved, and we see these mysteries, and we think, I mean, my wife loves this sort of thing, she loves, she loves looking at these things, and she, she wants to tell me who is the murderer, you know, by, by about the minute in. Most times you're pretty right, to be honest. But I want to say the mystery we're talking about here that Paul is talking about is not some riddle to be solved. Okay? It's not that only people with the intelligence of Sherlock Holmes can get his head or his mind around. You know, we have books out there, and we have books of the Vinci Code. You may have seen it. We have a book of the Bible Code, which people get hooked on. They get obsessed with trying to figure out these codes that are there in the Bible. And it's all arranged around numbers and, and different passages. And, you know, the Bible is not meant to be this code that can be solved by some sort of uh, mathematician. It's not meant to be something that needs to be solved by this intelligent mind like Sherlock Holmes. It's not something we need to break. It's not a sort of mystery. What else is it not? It's not some sort of new age enlightenment. Okay, type of mystery where essentially you're encouraged to empty your mind of everything and everything else and eliminate conscious thoughts. It's not something that really you can only just experience and you can't express because it's just it's just an experience I have. It's not that kind of mystery either. Sometimes, you might want to ask my wife, what do you see in books? <laughs> it's not that type of mystery either. Okay? And it's not some sort of secrets that once we find out the mystery, we'll keep it quiet. And we can't tell anyone. Okay? What Paul is talking about with this mystery simple. Something that was hidden and is now revealed. And we know because we read chapter 1 and we see it in this passage, the mystery of Christ crucified. And he tells us that it was hidden from the rulers of this age. And it's very debated as to who are the rulers of that age? Who is Paul talking about? Some would say it's the rulers of that age. It was the Romans who obviously built this colony. They were in power, so you've got, you know, Herod and Pilate and those people that we're aware of. It's those guys. 
to perceive things. But Paul saying here, these things cannot be perceived by the ear or the mind or the eyes alone. Matthew chapter 13. When the disciples came to him, and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. It's like the truth here has been hidden just in plain sight. It's right there before the eyes, but somehow it's been hidden. And it reminds me a little bit of the story of Jesus. And if you've seen Luke 4, and he returns from Nazareth, returns to Nazareth, and he turns to the synagogue there, and he reads out this scripture in the synagogue, doesn't he? He reads out Isaiah, all of that. And, um, the people ask him some questions, some were amazed by his teaching, and then they get angry with some of his responses. And it says this, verse 28, chapter 4, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. Sometimes for us in the church, and sometimes we look at it, and this is what Paul's been saying, sometimes we look at God's mercy, and we look, sometimes we look at it and we think, this can't be God's A plan. This must have been his B plan. Yeah, but we even sometimes might think, this must have been God's Z plan. You know, to send his son to be crucified on a cross. That's the way God chose to save mankind. You know, this passage tells us this isn't some B plan. It's not some Z plan of God's. He hasn't had to react to situations going on and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to reamend what I'm doing here. This was God's A plan from day one. The passage tells us that it was before time began. This was destined before time began. He 
is always giving God promise. This is his wisdom. And this is the secret that has been hidden from all until God decreed it to be revealed. It doesn't matter how much of a detective or how much of a clever mind that you might have. God has hidden a significant disconnect between human wisdom and godly wisdom. And if God wants to hide something, like he can hide himself in a cloud, then no one's going to be able to find it. So who is this spirit of wisdom that Paul talks about in this passage? He says, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. But who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Who is this spirit that Paul speaks of? For many of you here this morning, you're going to know who he is. You're going to have had personal encounters with him, a relationship with him. But I'll tell you, he's a person. He's a person. And we're first introduced to him at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1. And it says this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. At the very beginning, before time, before creation, he was, he is. We see him again in many different areas of the Bible. But another area we see the Spirit is when Jesus gets baptized. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, this interaction of God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Spirit in the baptism. Somehow. So 
machine, I cannot know what can and can't happen. And so he uses this analogy, the spirit of God is God. He's not only all-powerful and everywhere, all the time. That's who God is. That's who the spirit is. He knows God's very mind and his plans. And it's only he who can reveal his mystery to us. So, essentially, if we want to know who God is, if we want to know his mind, his plans, we can't without the Holy Spirit. We cannot know him personally. Paul already explained to us, hasn't he, that although the mystery of Christ is in plain sight for all to see, it doesn't make any sense to us without the work of the Spirit in us. It seems like absolute foolishness. As I said, Jesus sent the Spirit from you. And no longer is the Spirit of God to be found in a tent in the desert or in a box in a temple made of bricks and mortar. He chose a new dwelling place on earth to reside. But the Bible tells us that he chose to dwell inside you and I. The Spirit of God chose to dwell inside of us. Those who have put their trust in Christ from a human perspective, human wisdom, you think that is absolutely mental. What you're talking about is just crazy. But you know, this is God's perfect wisdom for mankind. Because he wants to use his people to bring his good news to every tribe and every nation and every people group. Again, whether the spirit lives in us, we can all go home now and live perfect lives. Yeah? Unfortunately, that's not the end. What we'll see in the next chapter in Corinthians is that the church was described as immature. Because actually they were still choosing to follow the world's wisdom. Although they had access to God's revelation, there was something they were choosing not to do, which meant they weren't maturing in their faith. And I think just to add, there's three really important things we can learn from the end of this passage about putting our faith in Christ and how the Spirit moves. Firstly, we want to turn to the Bible in Leviticus and look at three verses. We start with verse 12. Because we have re- what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we, we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is speaking to those who put their, Christ, their, their faith in Christ, Jesus, and Paul describes this person as a true spiritual person. Okay? This is actually something about identity as we put into God's kingdom. 
Barabbas got his foot out of one kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom. And there's something about our identity here that it's quite a passive thing. It's actually God's. The emphasis is on God here. It's not that in our hopelessness, in our darkness, that we came seeking God's. And we found him. Actually, the Bible tells us it was God who sent his spirit, who has actually opened our eyes, who has allowed our minds to conceive him through the spirit. We cannot come to know him without his spirit, without his revelation. And so there's something here of God doing his work. And there's something here that's a little bit, a little bit passive for us. This is his work. Salvation is his work. And to understand what he's freely given us, it sometimes sounds like it is graced upon us. You know, we receive his spirit to help us understand God's grace in our lives. We receive his Holy Spirit to help us to understand his grace in our lives. It's not something that we have to work hard to attain to or to get. You don't have to live up to a certain standard before God will even touch you. It's freely given. It's grace to us. I just want to remind us of two words and our definitions. Mercy, you have heard this word. What does mercy mean? Mercy is something it's we don't get what we deserve. So in a court, if you had committed a crime and you deserve to be locked away, mercy, God showing mercy on us, essentially him letting us off with the punishment that we deserve. Grace. Grace, we don't get, we, we, sorry, we get what we don't deserve. We get what we don't deserve. Not only will we let off from the punishment, So we receive his spirit. Secondly, I want to just turn to verse 14. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. Paul contrasts the spiritual man in this passage with the unspiritual. Okay? And again, he's suggesting that worldly wisdom sees the gospel of God as foolishness. But at the end of this verse, he says that these things are only discerned through the Spirit. And in other translations, it's translated, they are spiritually discerned. Now, this isn't a contradiction I'm about to bring here. They work hand in hand. The gospel of grace is freely given to us. We just know that in verse 12. But there's something here, and that was quite, quite passive, this is God's work, but there's something here which actually is an active thing for us. There's a suggestion that we are to discern through the Spirit, we are to understand and accept this message of grace. Okay? So we can receive it, it's there, God's got this gift for us to receive, but there's something here about discerning it, of working it out, of understanding, of accepting this message 
of grace. You know, we can actually choose not to accept God's grace. We can choose to reject Him. God doesn't force His Spirit on us. Okay? It's not like it's something that we can say, it's not like something that's just overpowering us. God doesn't work like that. He actually wants us to choose Him because we love Him. And He will come with this this grace, this free gift. He will come with His Spirit. But we do have grace. Just like we're able to reject the Spirit of this world, we're also able to reject the maturing that the Spirit wants to bring in the world. something here that Paul is helping the church to understand. We need to discern this. We need to work out this gift of grace that God has given you. And then finally, verse 13, it says, this is what we speak. I've gone back a verse. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual words. You know, as spiritual people, that's who God has made us. That's who God has described and that's who Paul has described in verse as spiritual people. We're not just giving this understanding for ourselves. God, as we realize from this passage, has mostly revealed the mystery of his gospel, of his son, Jesus Christ. He's revealed. Then we get to receive this message of grace. Then we get to discern it, to work it out, to understand it. Why? Not so we can just live our happy lives then. This verse tells us it's to impart. God's plan is that we can enjoy Him. We can enjoy the gospel and live it out in our lives. But what the Spirit does, He wants us to impart this message to others. Church 
Christ from the worship book. And God hears it. He makes it clear to us. And so we still want to have fun together. We want to enjoy time together. And we do that regularly. We do that weekly in our groups. But obviously we're united through God through Christ crucified. And I just want to throw a challenge out there. I thought what we need to actually start to apply some of this stuff that Paul's talking about. I want to challenge you. And maybe in your groups or as you're meeting with people during the week or during the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, I want to throw you a challenge. And actually, you bring to one another, you bring to somebody in clean church. Okay? Some of the great truths of Christ. Some of his love. Some of the understanding of what it means, the consequences of being a child of his. As the Spirit speaks to you in your times, in your devotions, as you open up Scripture and he says, look at that. Why not bring it to somebody in clean church for that? This is what Paul says the church is. Okay? We encourage one another. We provoke one another with the very word of God. Can I ask you to do that? Yeah? Secondly, I think there's no, there's no easy time right now to discuss with friends and neighbors or colleagues the true meaning of Christmas and the, whole, the wonderful life-changing gifts that has been given to us in Christ. It's another way. How do we bring God's love? How do we impart what God has given us through grace? We do that in our everyday life. With your face, that just connects. And we just share a little bit about what he's given in our lives. And we share in this time so I said you don't know God this morning and you just don't seem to be able to understand what all this Jesus stuff is about then I'm going to pray with you and pray that he would reveal himself to you you might be in a position also where God has revealed himself to you and you want to actually receive them into your life. You want to receive this gift of grace of Jesus Christ. You want to know that security that can help you do the things that don't seem to be. I'm to pray with you. As a church, I want to encourage you what God is saying to you. To get stuck in, to understanding this gift of grace, this gospel of Christ crucified. Where we can expect him to reveal more himself to others through us. Yeah. Right, let me pray.